0: touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we wanted to talk about a an important figure in tech who often, I think, is overlooked uh, not on purpose, it's just he himself was a very uh, kind of m- m- reclusive is probably the wrong word, but he didn't seek the spotlight.
0: He became a very private person. And also the work that he was doing was technical enough in nature that I think it's a little bit less dynamic as explained to the general public.
1: Yeah, it's a little more tricky than saying this person built this thing, which changed the world. This is the person who came up with the idea that the things that were built that changed the world were built upon. Did that make sense? I can't. Uh, I'd have to diagram the sentence. We're talking about Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon, folks. Yes. The father of information theory. Right. Also known as the father of the electronic communication age, and um his full name, Claude Elwood Shannon. Uh, very important person. He's been he's been compared to uh, you know some some pretty impressive some, big, some decently
0: big people uh, like. I know, Einstein. Yeah,
1: Einstein being one of them, and you might say, "Well, whoa, ho, ho. you know, Einstein." Like, Einstein's name has become synonymous with just the the concept of genius, like to the point where we use it in phrases where we're being, you know, a little a little uh, condescending, cheeky. Yeah. yeah, way to go, Einstein, that kind of thing. But as you'll see when we go through this this episode and explain what Claude Shannon did and his his contributions to technology, as well as just kind of his wacky personality, you'll really kind of see how that that applies. So exactly who was he and what did he do? When was this guy born?
0: He was born in 1916 in Petoskey, Michigan. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. Uh, his father was a probate judge and his mother was a high school principal.
0: Uh, he also did have some mildly famous family. A very distant cousin of his kind of made a name for himself. Yeah,
1: for uh killing an elephant with electricity.
0: <laughs> Thomas Edison.
1: Uh, he did a Boo. few other things, too. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's the requisite <laughs> booing from the Internet. Uh, Thomas Edison obviously did many, many important things some of them not remotely involving putting an animal to death with electricity. Yeah. Um, so, Most of them,
0: in fact, I would say.
1: <laughs> the large majority of mm-hmm. which. So Kill an elephant once. I know. <laughs> yeah, it just sticks with you, right? Well, as a boy, Claude Shannon became interested in electronics and began uh, experimenting with different stuff. He was just curious about how things work and how to build them himself. He built a working model of an airplane. Pretty impressive. Think think he was born in 1916. You didn't have airplanes for very long. Yeah,
0: they were pretty new. <laughs> yeah,
1: they were brand new back in the early 20th century. And he also reportedly made a working telegraph system that he set up between his bedroom and a friend's bedroom. His friend lived half a mile away
0: and it was all made out of fencing wire. Yeah,
1: so he could. Oh, well, not he, all,
0: but I mean, yeah. Well, the yeah, system. the wire itself. Right. Yeah, he
1: could actually end up sending messages to his friend half a mile away.
0: Uh, he was also really into radio circuits and built a radio-controlled model boat.
1: Yeah, so very so, much so interested. Just like that. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is the 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 growing world of radio technology and the growing world of communications technology. So he was interested in it as a kid. Now a little bit later on. When he was a teenager, he got work as a basic mechanic in a drugstore, running a fix-it shop in a drugstore. Cause that's, that oh. was like the center of town. Yeah, in back small... when
0: drugstores were, sure. Yeah,
1: where you go and you go and get your, your chocolate malt and your, uh, your, your fan fixed. You know, it's a one-stop shop. He attended Ann Arbor College, uh, where he studied mathematics and electrical engineering. Uh, he graduated Ann Arbor College in 1936 and then went on to enroll in graduate level study at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology.
0: Uh, and he decided upon MIT because he saw this work study ad uh, like Pinned onto a physical bulletin board On his college campus that was advertising For someone interested in working On Vannevar Bush's Differential analyzer uh, Which was an analog computer That used these physical Mechanical connections to make calculations Right The the deal here was that he would spend half his time Working towards his degree and the other half In the lab with Bush um, Who was then MIT's vice president And also their dean of engineering So this was kind of sort of a big deal um, And this machine was huge. It was a system of gears and pulleys and rods that calculated with an entire range of values that were based on the physical rotation of the rods. And you could... Program it by physically rearranging all of these mechanical bits to correspond with different equations. the The control circuit. I mean, th- this is how early this was in computing technology. the The control circuit itself was a system of some a hundred electromagnetic switches.
1: Yeah, this this is a kind of the the evolution of what Charles Babbage created way back right. in the day, the Difference mm-hmm. Engine. Uh, so we've done the tech stuff's done episodes about Anna Lovelace, who was the first computer programmer she built. She kind of saw that computers could be things that could do more than just crunch numbers. They could, could
0: analyze any kind of data.
1: Yeah, they, they could represent stuff that isn't numbers as numbers so that you could. You, she had this brilliant idea of, oh, a computer might be able to represent something like a piece of music. And be able to create, uh, you know, replicate it in some way, years and years ahead of her time. And the computers of those days were these giant analog actual Machines. engines, yeah, yeah. Sometimes man powered, sometimes they had this electromechanical element to it. So we're predating the time of the electronic computer at this point. So, uh, as Claude Shannon began to work on this machine, you know, now that he had had enrolled with MIT he noticed something interesting. He saw that the switches corresponded with a concept he had started on un- uh, studying first as an undergraduate and now was really focusing on, which was symbolic logic. Now, uh, I took symbolic logic in college. Yeah, I loved it because the basic idea of symbolic logic is you reduce logical statements to mathematical statements.
0: Uh, Actually, I took a similar class. It was it was basically the uh, least mathematical math class I could get away with as an English major.
1: (laughs) Well, the the neat thing about it is that if you could prove that it mathematically made sense, then you could say that the statement is true. Right. right. Yeah. And if it uh, doesn't logic based, it's great. Yeah, exactly. So you could you could start to listen to your friends argue and <laughs> sketch it out in, in and a be really equation. annoying. <laughs> and then you say, look, here's where you went wrong. But at any rate, while he was at MIT, he started really studying the work of a thinker named George Boole, who was from the 19th century. And back in 1854, George Boole published an investigation of the laws of thought on which are founded the mathematical theories of logic and probabilities. Sometimes known as the laws of thought. Yeah, we usually shorten that to just laws of thought. So this discussion about the mathematical theories of logic uh, had Boole using algebraic equations to represent logical forms and syllogisms, which is exactly what I experienced when I was in college. Uh, In this work, he also said that the only Idempotent numbers, which are numbers that can be put through a certain operation multiple times without changing the result are zero and one. For example, one times one equals one. And no matter how many times you You multiply multiply
0: one by one, it will always be
1: one. Right. So if you take the product of that of that uh that equation and then multiply it by itself, you still stay with one. Same thing with zero, although also with zero you can add and subtract and still end up with zero. So zero, 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 zero. So Boole used 0 and 1 for the values of the symbols in his algebraic logic. He said an argument held in logic if, when reduced to an algebraic equation, it held in common algebra with the 0-1 restriction of the possible interpretations of the symbols. Meaning that if you could replace the symbols with a 0 or a 1 and it still made sense, it still worked, then it held true. So Claude Shannon looked at this, and he was thinking this is a really cool idea i love this this approach to logic and hey you know a switch has two positions
0: on and off
1: so it's sort
0: of like a one and zero yeah
1: i mean what if we were to you know kind of oh play with that that whole switch process and that became something that would percolated in the back of his head for a while yeah in fact it percolated so long that uh people suspect that he had fully formed this whole idea of applying Boolean logic to electronic devices for years before writing it down. And and once he wrote it out and presented it, well, we'll get there. We'll get
0: there. Uh, I also do want to note that around this time, Shannon became interested in juggling. I, I think originally for like physical mathematical purposes, he showed up. He started showing up at the um, MIT Juggling Club. And... <laughs> juggling
1: Club. I see what you did there.
0: And asking some of its members if he could, like, measure their juggling and and thereby sort of got involved with them. And yeah. and this would be a lifelong interest, as we will get into a little bit later on. A
1: little bit of trivia. Uh, a a certain podcaster by the name of Jonathan Strickland was a founding member of the University of Georgia Juggling Club. Yeah. So uh, that's the only thing I really share in common with Claude Shannon. <laughs> I loved Symbolic Logic and I enjoy juggling. There the comparison ends, Uh for he was far more intelligent than I can ever hope to aspire. But yes, me, I, yes. You, yeah, you have to agree. Sorry, I mean no, it's sorry, it's fine. man, it's fine. I have come <laughs> to grips with it. I'm okay. If you told me, hey, Jonathan, you're never going to be as smart as, say, Claude Shannon or Albert Einstein, it's a, you know, yeah, no, all I, right. Most people won't be. That's so. fair. I guess. 1938. Claude Shannon writes a thesis applying Boole's approach to circuitry by equating the zero one restriction as the off and on positions of a switch within a circuit. He was 22 years old. This, this had never been done. This had never been done. This is the first
0: time anyone had ever said this, certainly out loud, and, uh, other thinkers have said that it would have taken decades. For anyone else to have come to this kind of conclusion.
1: Right. We could have been sort of groping around with other approaches for years before someone had come up with this particular uh, uh, Solution. version. Yeah. And and not only did he come up with this idea, but the way he pre- he presented it in his thesis, it was uh, very elegant. And he would he would expand upon it a little bit later to the point where people said this is this is why he gets compared to Einstein. It's like Einstein saying not just I figured out this one component to how the universe works,
0: uh, but being able to express it elegantly
1: and have a whole picture. Right. Like yeah. it's like it's not just a fact. It's a, a, a whole host of facts that are all support one another. And it's like they say it's it's like you come up with a, a, a fundamental theory of science and unfold it all at once. Just unpack it. It's just phenomenal
0: for everyone. Yeah. So
1: his thesis also laid out how logical functions such as and or and not could be implemented within a physical circuit. So building of logic gates. Now, keep in mind, this is all in a hypothetical slash theoretical approach.
0: Uh, right. It's not like he was he wasn't building this mechanically or or, or electronically, electronically. Yeah. as the case may be. Exactly.
1: Right. Yeah. He was he was he was laying out how this could be possible, not actually building them himself. Uh, 1940, Claude Shannon leaves MIT after earning a doctorate in mathematics to teach for one year at Princeton. Um, and here's a story It has a couple of different, it has some alternate endings. Yes. We will present you with the (laughs) two that we know of, but the story goes that he was teaching at Princeton and while he was teaching a, a class, he was holding a lecture, a a Albert Einstein himself opened the door and stepped inside and Claude Shannon kept going on with the lecture but obviously was very much impressed with the fact that this genius has walked into his classroom. He sees Einstein bend over and whisper something to one of the students in the back. He sees that the student replies, and then he sees that Einstein quietly leaves the room. He continues on with his lecture. At the end of the lecture, he holds the student back and, with great anticipation, asks the student, what did this brilliant man have to say about my lecture? And... My version of the story was that Einstein had very quietly asked the student, where are they currently serving tea? <laughs> I've,
0: I've heard that he asked where the men's room was.
1: So it may be there's where are they currently allowing you to pee? <laughs> Could possibly been. At any rate, uh, apparently that became one of Claude Shannon's Favorite stories. He would yes. love to tell the story about how Albert Einstein walked into his classroom and asked something completely not connected with what he had to say, and that made him like just, just it tickled him. It tickled him, oh, yeah. Sure. And I thought, well, that that also tells you a lot about his his uh, personality that he did not take himself seriously. Very seriously. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in nineteen forty one, he joined a company famous for its research and development, Bell Telephone Labs, and uh, his work. Mostly focused on things that had to do with the war effort. And It's 1941, it's mm-hmm. World War II, and uh, it included anti-aircraft devices that could calculate and target counter-missiles,
0: oh, which came pretty seriously in handy during the German Blitz on England.
1: Yeah, yeah. It turns out if uh, if your enemy is blasting you with missiles, counter-missiles are a high priority. He also got to work in cryptography. So here's something where he's got a, a you know a, a connection with people like Alan Turing, who was working on uh, cracking the Enigma machine back over in England. He was now Claude Shannon was designing devices used by Allied powers to send messages back and forth. So he was looking at keeping Allied messages safe rather than cracking German messages right. or Axis power messages. Uh, he later wrote a paper about communication theory of secrecy systems, which.
0: Uh, according to MIT is generally credited with transforming cryptography from an art to a science um it, it was a mathematical proof that an encryption scheme called the one-time pad or the Vernum cipher is is unbreakable yes and it's uh, the that cipher is the basic idea of encoding a message with a random series of digits a, a key as we have talked about on the show before mm-hmm. um which both parties communicating have a copy of uh, but you know this is a very Mm, simple concept in cryptography, but having the mathematical proof that it is, in fact, unbreakable if the system is
1: Is preserved properly, yes. then
0: that's really awesome.
1: And when we talked about the Enigma machine, that was one of those systems that could have been unbreakable had people actually been able to follow the rules properly. But because there were two things that really fell apart for the Enigma machine, and I know this is a bit of a tangent, but it relates to this. Those two things were, one, the Enigma machine was designed so that no matter what, the letter you pressed would never light up as the same, the same letter would never light up as the letter that you had pressed. Right. So knowing that meant that you could remove one variable from all the possible outcomes. Secondly, people were not as careful with their log books, with their code books as they needed to be. Right. Um, and that, that led to the code being broken. But everyone seems to agree that had every, had the Germans had the Axis powers, been uh, incredibly careful, then that would have been an unbreakable code. Of course, you no, know, he, times human... of war you can't really...
0: Oh, sure. And human error being what it is. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's, it's that's the difference between the ideal and reality. Meanwhile, uh, Claude Shannon began to develop theories on how to apply his ideas about Boolean logic and circuitry to telephone switching lines because, of course, he's working at Bell Labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1947... Uh, Something else not involving Claude Shannon happened at Bell Labs. The development of the transistor. Now, the transistor was a huge breakthrough. It meant that the world of electronics could move away from things like vacuum tubes and uh, allow this other device to take its place, essentially, which ultimately led to the miniaturization of electronics.
0: Uh, But it wouldn't be until Claude Shannon um, published his concepts about information theory that would let that be a functional item in the way that it became.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it was really this idea of digitizing information that Shannon had that made this a, a practical device beyond just, uh, you know, especially that early transistor. It's enormous. If you ever see a picture oh, yeah. of it, oh. I mean, compared to the, if you think that billions of transistors can now fit on a microprocessor chip and then you look at the first one, it's, it's, Enormous difference, obviously. Now, uh, this idea of digitizing information was pretty much what would allow the transistor to become useful, and also it's what would lead to things like encoding information onto storage media like, uh, like a compact disk. Uh, right. This is what would make not just, uh, uh, processing data possible, but, but storing saving. it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh and right, it's it's kind of a really beautiful coincidence that both of these technologies were being developed at Bell Labs within a year of each other, as it turns out, because in nineteen forty-eight, that is when Claude Shannon actually published his paper, uh Mathematical Theory of Communication.
1: Yes. And that's available in PDF form. We'll we'll share the link Mm -hmm. because you can actually read his paper on information theory. And this is the one that I said earlier that, you know, people people who were Information theory experts, they say like this is this is like Einstein coming out with the theories of relativity, this idea of a complete picture, not just an idea, but a complete picture of an approach that laid the groundwork for digitizing information so it can be transmitted and stored. Now, again, he was a theorist. He He did not
0: build this. He explained how it is mathematically possible.
1: Right. And so it, it left it up to engineers and computer scientists to figure out OK, if this is theoretically possible, how do we make it real? Like, right. What do we do to actually put this stuff into into reality and have it work for us? Uh, now, 1948 was when it was published. But there are people who have looked into Claude Shannon's life who say that he may have had this fully formed as early as 1943, and he thought that it was a really cool idea, but just didn't think, uh, you know, uh, no one else is going to care about this.
0: <laughs> I, I would I would argue, I mean, from, from what I've read, it sounded to me more like he kind of had it brewing and just didn't want to present it until it was done.
1: He did seem like the kind of person who he wanted to make sure that he had as complete a picture of an idea as possible before presenting it to anyone else. He did not want to have the experience of coming forward with just half an idea. Right. Uh, So, yeah, he's kind of a perfectionist in that sense. Mm -hmm. And it it really is a challenge to explain just to an average person exactly how important this theory was. But, you know, in in a practical sense, at the time that he was coming up with this, it was necessary to create a better telephone system. So in the old analog telephone system, you've got some pretty big limitations some some barriers you got to get across uh
0: due to signal loss or noise an analog telephone signal gets weaker the longer that the telephone line it's traveling along is
1: yeah so in order to get around that engineers would place amplifiers along a telephone line to boost the signal so you get a weak signal coming in it goes through the amplifier the signal's boosted it's stronger going out
0: but unfortunately um the along with the signal that you want to get boosted all of the noise that's on the line also gets boosted so yeah. Eventually, you run out. I mean, I mean, just the noise takes over.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. You lose the signal in mm-hmm. the noise. So that would be, you know, if you've ever uh, heard like one of those those telephone conversations that goes on in, in an old movie where it's just like all you hear is crackling. Yeah. yeah. Just imagine that if you're far enough away that all you would get was the static. You would not get any voice at all. So uh, the interesting thing was that by switching from analog signals to digital signals. They didn't have to worry about the signal boosting problem. Instead of a continuous signal like a sine wave, which is, you know, an acoustic wave is what you would get with a, a, an analog telephone line. Mm-hmm. G- digital signals are sent in a series of bits and a bit is either a zero or a one. That's all based off of Claude Shannon's application of Boolean algebra to electronics. And it worked. So you could do this with telephones, which was great. But it meant you could also do it with just about any other kind of information transfer. From radio to telegraph, telephones, everything. And again, this was one of those things that could not immediately be implemented. The engineers had to build the technology oh, to right, support it. Right. But once they did, they, they realized we can build out a nationwide telephone, even a global telephone system that doesn't require amplifiers every X number of miles because you're never going to lose that that. Uh, signal clarity.
0: Uh, right. Like hypothetically, you can do this with literally zero loss in quality. So, so long as you don't mind taking the necessary amount of time for each bit to be transferred. Really, right. the transfer speed is the only cap that you're working with at this
1: juncture. Exactly. And Claude Shannon, he, he kind of came up with that too. He said, uh, you know, if, if we have, uh, infinite amount of time, you'll have zero signal loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that any, medium of transmission is going to have ultimately a cap of how much data it can carry at any given within a given amount System, of time. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting because that was one of those things that ended up becoming a, a challenge to engineers. He said, look, for whatever medium you choose, it's, and it's specific to each medium. You're going to have this limit that you're going to hit and you can't go beyond it and the engineer said all right we agree there's no way we can go beyond that limit so what our goal is is to get as close to that limit as we possibly can
0: and and this also led into some really interesting side concepts about digital compression and error fixing Ex-
1: yeah exactly yeah you had to you you could end up compressing data into smaller data packages which helps you uh get around that bandwidth cap mm-hmm. but in order to do that you also have to have that that error correction software that al- those algorithms that are able to de- detect and and fix any errors that come across while you're transmitting this information these were all laid out yeah, by his ideas yeah
0: and and that that error correction concept also ties back into the the idea that uh you know if you scratch a cd you can still it, it can still be read
1: yeah yeah, because you have these extra bits that are built into the data itself, these bits that otherwise would seem superfluous. They're not necessary for you to have the full message, but those extra bits actually allow some redundancy. So if there is some damage to the physical medium, you can still end up using it, and it's not like you get a smudge on your... your your disk and now you can't use it right so Uh,
0: the concept of a disk also being new because that was something that he laid out in here saying that this is a method for possible storage not just transmission but also
1: storage yeah so so big big ideas Uh, at any rate moving on with his life i mean he's so he's already gotten to the point where he's laid out everything that's going to lead to things like jpegs mp3s zip files uh data transmission across cable across telephone lines all of this stuff is possible because of the ideas he came up with. He, his life continues on, and in 1949, he marries Mary Elizabeth Moore. Uh, Betty. Betty. She was a numerical analyst at Bell Labs.
0: And uh, they would go on to have two children together.
1: And um, he also, during his uh, time off from changing the world, uh, decided to build a simple computer to play chess and he wrote a paper about programming computers and uh, computer chess algorithms a lot of computer uh, like chess playing computers are still based upon the foundations that he laid out while he was working on this uh you find that Claude Shannon in his spare time often did things that <laughs> that most of us would be like well you could have a full time job doing that he's like no i just nah, want to do that
0: i just on I'm the just, side I'm whatever you know yeah
1: but I like to keep my hand in uh around that time engineers at Bell Labs that time being 1949, began to actually create the technology that implemented Shannon's ideas. And they built something called a regenerative repeater. And the idea was that a bit could be regenerated perfectly and repeatedly as long as the bits weren't, quote unquote, too small. So as long as the messages weren't too small, they could consistently regenerate a message. uh, And that would mean that you would, again, have no signal loss. You wouldn't lose any data in the process because... You could just, just as quickly as it was coming into the regenerative regenerative repeater, it would send out a copy, the same data message back out again.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Also around this time, as the engineers at Bell Labs were creating uh, that that physical technology to incorporate Shannon's ideas, he started to introduce the idea of bandwidth limits.
1: Yeah, this is what I was talking about when he said, it doesn't matter what medium you're using, eventually you're going to hit that capacity. And eventually they started calling this the Shannon Capacity or Shannon Limit. So it was, again, a very important idea that ended up being uh, playing a huge role in the telecommunications industry, as well as just electronics and computing in general. Uh, so this is what gives engineers that goal. This is where they want to hit as close to that number as they possibly can to maximize the amount of data they can shove through any particular medium mm-hmm. at top speed. So, you know, we often talk about data transmission speeds, But speed is really kind of a a deceptive term because it's not just how fast something gets from point A to point B. Usually we're talking about speeds that are approaching the speed of light. Yeah, that's really fast. (laughs) What What we're really concerned with is throughput, which is the amount of data that can travel at that speed to get from point A to point B. Because if you're dividing that data up into lots of of bits, like a, a long string, yes, each individual bit is moving at the speed of light. But you still got to get that whole string through. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. It's it's the, you know, getting the caboose through at the end. Is yeah, really...
1: yeah, it's the idea of if, the, uh, if we hear that there's pizza in the kitchen uh, and we're all invited to go and eat it, then the problem isn't that... Uh, we have a bunch of slow people on staff. We're all very, very fast. The problem is the door is only so wide and eventually four or five of us will all just try and cram through it at the same time. So that's the difference between just speed and throughput.
0: Now, except ones and zeros don't usually elbow you in the face.
1: That's true. But we have no such restriction as we have demonstrated upon multiple occasions. Uh, now. At this time, engineers were also trying to find on ways to take on other elements of this theory, like the compression and redundancy ideas and build working devices and algorithms that turn that theory into reality, actually making products that could take advantage of the ideas that Shannon had produced. And, uh... um,
0: Meanwhile, Shannon received <laughs> a very special present a uh, uh, Christmas of 1949 from his wife this year, uh, a unicycle. Yeah. And stories say that he frequently rode through the halls of Bell Labs at night on this unicycle while juggling.
1: He is my hero. Because why not? Now, see, if my wife gave me a unicycle for Christmas, I would imagine she was plotting my demise. And perhaps had put taken out a, yet another life insurance policy on me. Because she knows... <laughs> my, my lack of, of balance. <laughs> but, uh, but I, 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 have nothing but respect for someone who is transforming information theory while riding a unicycle and, and juggling. Juggling. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Uh, I, I, cause, cause meanwhile, he was looking into machine intelligence and memory. Yeah.
1: He was really branching out. You know, he was, he was very much a, a interested in exploring all these different ideas. Now, by 1956, he decides to leave Bell Labs, though he continues on as a consultant, and he goes back to MIT to teach. Uh, he also wrote a paper. It was called uh The Bandwagon, and uh, that's when he said he didn't really like how the words information theory were being thrown around. So essentially what he was saying was that they were losing their value. Information theory as a concept was losing its value because companies We're using it to describe things that didn't really fall within the umbrella of information. Oh, yeah. It
0: it was a really popular and pop culture almost term in the scientific community at the time. I mean, people were publishing papers that had information theory in the title just because they thought it sounded cool when, in fact, right, it had nothing to do with that. So
1: it it was kind of like how virtual reality became this buzzword that began to lose meaning, Mm -hmm. particularly when uh, the public started to see what the reality of the field was as compared to the Hollywood depiction of what virtual reality was back in the the early 90s. Uh,
0: sure, sure. Or like artificial intelligence. Yep. Or I read an essay recently from the guy who coined the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl, saying that he just wished he had never done that yeah. thing.
1: I, I I would like to apologize to the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this was one of those interesting things where the paper wasn't so much about uh, advancing the concept, but just saying, let's use our words carefully and correctly. Uh, he said that perhaps the term had, quote, ballooned to an importance beyond its actual accomplishments, end quote.
0: I think that's a little bit modest on his part, honestly. I, I think
1: so, too, considering that, again, without that theory, computers and electronics would not work the way they do today.
0: Uh, yeah, but uh, at any rate, this kind of marked the beginning of Shannon's disappearance from the, the research and technology scene. He he really didn't want to be a celebrity, I think. Yeah. And he had this huge push from the media and the government and science in general to, to be made into one. And it it kind of pulled him away from from both research and public education.
1: Right. And he was it wasn't that he was cold. Uh, from what I understand, whenever he gave talks, they were really popular. They were great,
0: And whenever he wrote papers, they were really great.
1: But he was constantly being pressured to do that, and it was starting to become more of something that would cause him anxiety as opposed to something that he would enjoy doing. Well, in 1973, the Information Theory Society, which is part of the IEEE, or IEEE, created an annual Shannon Lecture that became the Shannon Award. Uh, And in 1978, Claude Shannon officially retired from MIT, although he had not really been actively working there for some years before then. Sure, certainly. Uh, and in 1987, Claude Shannon gave his last interview to Omni magazine. Now, by the late 80s, Claude Shannon began to suffer from Alzheimer's and withdrew from the public eye entirely. His mm-hmm. wife would go and attend events instead in his place.
0: Uh, and in February 2001, at the age of 84, he would pass away.
1: Yes. There are some very... uh Inspiring and moving tributes to Claude Shannon that were published. Um, Really beautiful things. You can certainly go online and uh, read a lot of those those tributes that were written the the week and and month following his passing. And we have a collection of interesting little trivia that we didn't really want to fit into the overall episode but uh, were too yeah, entertaining yeah. to pass up. It, it didn't
0: really fit into the timeline but so much of I mean if, if it wasn't charming enough I mean if charming is the correct word actually charming is totally the correct word yeah. according to me I find it downright charming that he wrote uh you know papers that mathematically proved the computers can exist. Yeah. But uh <laughs> but, yeah. But, but but other than that there's just a lot of little just
1: Interesting minutiae, yeah. Moments, so, sure. so one of those things is that, you know, we just said he, he was not big on, on pursuing the limelight. He didn't, he didn't go after that at all. And, and often he would reluctantly take the stage. But, uh, as time went on, he did that even uh, less frequently. He wouldn't go out very much at all to, to address the public. And according to MIT Technology Review, he even had a file labeled, Letters I've procrastinated too long on. Oh. So if he got something from colleagues or government officials or scientific institutions and it had just been sitting around for a, a really long while, he would just put this in a file saying, well, oh, that's too, that's too late. Yeah, and that's never going to happen. So I'm just going to put that in this file. Oh. Um, he, like we said, loved to build stuff, to engineer stuff. You know, that whole telegraph line story is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, now as a parent, he built a chairlift that would take his kids from his house to a nearby lake <laughs> so they didn't have to walk the whole way to the lake. Uh, he also, from what I understand, designed a hidden panel in his office that didn't lead anywhere at all. He just
0: he just felt like building
1: one. He just needed it. It made me think of a, a Mitchell and Webb sketch where says, this wall must rotate, be both here and not here. <laughs> well, look, mate, that's a load-bearing wall. But anyway, he just decided he wanted to make one. He also built a life-sized electric mouse named Theseus, after the Greek mythology figure. Uh, that's the one who was stuck in the labyrinth and had to find his way uh-huh. out. And the mm-hmm. the Minotaur or Minotaur, depending upon your preferred pronunciation, is after him. So this mouse, what it was do is it, it would explore a maze and quote unquote remember where it had come from.
0: Uh, it was it was going after some little metal cheese bits. I yeah. think.
1: So the the way this mouse would go through the maze is it would go down a pathway and whenever the pathway would branch, it would start to rotate it, 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 right. Yeah. So it, it, it
0: would take one and then it would uh, it could backtrack if it went down an
1: incorrect route. Right. And then it could take the path it had not taken as opposed to, you know, if this were just an electronic mouse that had some collision detection, it wouldn't it could potentially just go back and forth down the same little pathway
0: forever. Yeah. But this was branching. This, yeah, this... Yeah,
1: this one knew, OK, well, I, I already took the path that's on the right, so I have to take the path that's on the left. So it was pretty cool that he built this thing. And, you know, just for the fun of it, he built it. So,
0: (laughs) Also, probably my my favorite robotic piece of his, a juggling robot. Yeah. A a bounce juggling robot, to be precise.
1: A bounce juggling robot that looked like W.C. Fields, (laughs) to be even more precise. Yeah, it was like having a, like, imagine a drum head, right? Mm -hmm. And the drum head uh, allows things that are dropped on it, like a ball bearing, to be bounced on it and then two little uh, uh angled platforms that are serving as hands mm-hmm. that are uh bouncing this again these little these little, balls yeah. yeah and it just kept it going in a in a bounce juggling pattern perfectly
0: and he basically made it out of like erector set pieces yeah you know just like you do
1: and then he wrote a paper on the dynamics of keeping multiple objects in the air simultaneously
0: it's pretty famous within the juggling community i
1: tried to read it what well, i actually wrote how juggling works for howstuffworks.com in fact if you go to that that uh, article on how stuff works and you look up how juggling works, there's a video of me juggling in that uh, article.
0: I still I still say it because I juggle a little bit. I still say that we really need to do a video of us both juggling. All right.
1: Uh, I juggled torches in mine. You ready to pick those up? No. OK, well, we'll 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 start small. I. Uh, he also made a robot that could solve a Rubik's Cube, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. I mean, obviously, that I needs... I can't solve a Rubik's Cube. Yeah, I so. can't either. I, I know there are algorithms for how to solve it uh, the most efficiently. And I've seen people who are really good at it, who just... Oh, yeah. Like, it, it's like it's like magic. You know, the way I solve a Rubik's Cube is by peeling the stickers off and then Aww. replacing them properly. Aww. Yeah, it's, uh-huh. I cheat. But, uh, yeah,, no, he, he created a robot that could follow these algorithms and also just recognize what the pattern was on any given side so it could you know create the rules that needed to solve it. Um, and he made a calculator that worked with Roman numerals. It was called Throwback which stood for a Thrifty Roman Numerical Backward-Looking Computer.
0: Uh, um, also, rocket-powered Frisbees and motorized pogo sticks.
1: Yes, the motorized pogo stick. I was thinking, like, again.
0: That sounds terrifying.
1: That would, uh, if the unicycle hadn't killed me already, that certainly would. Uh, he built the ultimate machine. My <laughs> favorite machine of all time is the ultimate machine. All right. Tell, tell us about it, Jonathan. All right. Now, imagine you have before you a box and on that box, you can see the outline of a trap door. And the only other really interesting feature on this box is a simple switch, a switch to off. And you push the switch to on. The trap door opens and a hand emerges from beneath the trap door and hits the switch back to the off position, withdraws back inside and the trap door closes. That's it. That's it. You <laughs> hit the switch and the har- arm comes back out. You hit the switch, the arm comes back out. Uh I, I want to share this video too. There's a video of a brilliant variation of the ultimate machine that is hysterically funny. It doesn't just do that. Like it starts to do it. So, um, it ends up at first looking like it's a variation on the ultimate machine. Like, Oh, that's cute. But then it starts doing other things too, because this particular box had wheels on it and can move out of the way. So it's starting to avoid the person who's trying to hit the switch uh, or it would uh, play back pre-recorded messages saying like, hey, hands off, buddy, that kind of stuff. And uh was really, really entertaining. So we'll share that one as well. But you have to remember that that particular very entertaining machine is based off this thing that Claude Shannon built for no reason other than it yeah, tickled him.
0: Just because he could. Um He also had a collection of exotic unicycles.
1: Including some that were because he he was wondering how small could you make a unicycle before someone would be unable to ride it? Uh, for me, that's any size.
0: But, uh, but I think me, too. That would be any size. But
1: assuming that you are capable of riding a unicycle, how small could you go before you could no longer maintain your balance? Uh, in fact, he had a couple that I've heard are essentially un-writable. Uh He also lectured on using information theory as an application to playing the stock market, though he never really published any work on this. He did do a lecture, but he didn't write a paper. Now, uh, he also did really well in the stock market himself, although he wasn't necessarily employing information theory to do so. He was investing in uh, companies that friends of his. Yeah, were
0: he made some very savvy stock purchases based yeah. on amazing work that his friends were doing. Yeah,
1: These are these are the people who were inventing like the basic components of computers and electronics going on to form their own companies. And he would invest in those and then they ended up being these, these enormous companies we know today. Mm-hmm. So he did quite well. Um, uh, and there's no Nobel Prize for mathematics, which uh, is why Claude Shannon never won one. Uh,
0: right. But he certainly did win a, a number. I mean, probably way too numerous to mention here awards, but, but one that we wanted to mention
1: is the very first Kyoto Prize, which was created in Japan to award honors to contributions in mathematics. Essentially, it was supposed to be the nobel prize for mathematics for, right right
0: and this was all the way in the 1980s and, that this came into invention yeah
1: the very first one went to claude shannon and from what i understand it actually came with a, a an even larger cash prize than the nobel prize does so wow, so dang. if you if you feel like he was he was uh, snubbed because nobel prizes don't recognize mathematics fear not the kyoto prize had him covered so I hope you guys, uh if you had not ever heard of Claude Shannon before, I hope you learned something in this episode, because he really did seem to be a remarkable person in multiple ways. I mean, this guy seems like the kind of professor I would have absolutely oh, adored yeah, in school. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I, like all of my professors who had lots of personality and were unafraid of coming across as a little unusual or Bonkers. oddball. Yeah. <laughs> those were my favorites. Of
0: course. Yeah.
1: Uh, so awesome. And, and I hope, uh, if there are any other really important figures in technology that you would love to hear us cover, you should let us know, send us a message. You can send us an email that addresses is stuff at how dot or drop us a line on Tumblr, Twitter, or Facebook. Our handle at all three is H S W, and we will talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.